Hey everyone, uh, Tombro number two, Electric Boogaloo here, Chuck Bungo. I just wanted to tell you folks, uh, this is the first time that we've really had a lot of technical issues, uh, just with, uh, because, uh, Matt and I live on the opposite sides of the state, and, um, we were having bad storms throughout PA here, and, uh, it was kind of making things difficult, so bear with us this episode, but make sure you stay tuned and enjoy. We got a lot of good stuff coming your way this episode. Hit the music! Alright, we're back with episode 4 of the Tone Bros Podcast here. And, uh, you know, the last the last couple I went back and listened to, I'm not going to lie, it was a little uh, little bit of me. I think I was like, this is really good. I think we did a really good job. Kind of patting myself on the back, trying to change my mentality. I don't know about you folks out there. I think it's kind of a... Well, first of all, before I get into this idea, let me, uh, let me introduce Tone Bro number one over here, Mr. Matt Horn. Matt, how you doing? I'm doing good. But how's everybody out there? How you doing, bud? I'm doing all right, man. And I am Tombro number two, Electric Boogaloo, uh, Chuck Bungo. And, um, you know, I was going to say, I feel like this is something, it's not really gear related, but I think it's it's music related. Do you find, and I've told this to a couple people uh, lately, do you find that, like, self-deprecation is, like, an inherent, like, musician or artistic thing? You know what I mean? Like you, how how many musicians do you meet? You know, like the standard like thing of like a really good musician being egotistical and everything. That's kind of like a cliche, an old hat. But like a lot of musicians I know are super self-deprecating. They're like the first ones to be like, "No, nah, I screwed this up. I missed this note. I did that. I did this." Right. We've kind of learned the hard way that humility do a really long way in the business in the industry. I mean, uh, I was I forget what I was I was listening to. Um, Accu Radio the other day, and they had a jazz station on, and they were playing uh, some Benny Goodman music. And I remember uh, the big name from that time was Gene Krupa on the drums, and he was such a pecker overall, uh, <laughs> just a hard guy to do business um, in that time period. And, and apparently, that was very common. Uh, you know, one of my heroes, Miles Davis, was a gigantic pecker to work in the to work with. He was very confrontational, very abusive toward other toward his um toward his staff members if you want to call them that but i think today i i think inherently we do have a level of self-deprecation you almost have to you have to you can take yourself seriously but in the art itself and this sounds very like very bougie uh but i think to be an artist you have to knock yourself down a little bit yeah uh, oh but, i agree yeah, and I like think you have to be able to knock yourself down a little bit well, and I, I think that's part of it, but like there's a difference between, you know, keeping yourself uh, in check from a humility standpoint and also being, you know, having that like kind of self-abuse to the point where you believe you're not doing a good job and you're not good. You know what I mean? Right. Like, right. Like in, because that also shows too. Oh, absolutely. And like I, I do that all the time and it wasn't until recently whenever – um hellbent started um started you know putting up more videos from our last gig which probably is going to be our last gig for the year because of covid but we played a, a little halloween show and um we played it with another local band called eight track days and 
like we, we have a bunch of videos um, that we put up of songs that we did. And one of them that someone caught was uh, the bulk of Panama. And there, there are a lot of songs that we play that like, I don't learn the solos note for note because like, for example, like we're working on war ensemble. <laughs> How do you play a Slayer solo note for note? You just, you don't like, you just, you don't. yeah, you just, you know, there are some no. things that you, pl- that you do have to hit some beats you have to hit, but you pretty much just go. Uh, and there's, and like a uh, uh, painkiller by Judas priest. That's the same way. But like mm-hmm. with Panama, yeah. everybody knows that solo. It is iconic. Like you can sing it. And that's the thing. If you, and my, yeah, my, I noticed that. Go ahead, Matt. No, I was just gonna say I noticed that uh, when I was a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, still here. Can you okay. hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Yeah, You're good. We back. Okay. Gotta love the internet. Oh, gotta so, love the inter- um, interwebs. Yeah, I noticed going back and yeah, the interwebs. Uh, going back and trying to relearn some some Van Halen solos. Yeah, that's that's uh, a that you can't really skimp on i think any like you said with slayer priest with a lot of that stuff it's it's a lot of whammy bar it's a lot of just tremolo picking and but with van halen there's so much nuance to it that if you're going to play it you almost just to do a service to me almost have to play it the the way the way he did and i mean it's it's another thing where i i didn't think i was capable of playing that until i started going back and started kind of deconstructing them. Then it just got a bit easy. I'm still not a hundred percent there and I will never be a hundred percent there because I'm not Eddie, but at least I, my confidence has gotten me to a point where I can, but it almost feels wrong when I try to fake it. If that makes any sense oh, at all. No. And, and I agree. And that's the thing is like going back and listening to that solo like right at the end when it goes back into the banana na 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 na, I I kind of biffed yep. going into that a little bit, but the rest of it, my uh, it's it's awesome when I when you get compliments from like your your peers, uh, that that mm-hmm. like you respect. My buddy Tony, uh, that I mentioned on the other podcast, um, he put a thing on there. He's like Chuck nailed that solo, and I listened to it and I went, I really did. Like I, I listened to it. And I was like, wow, I really, I, I, I got it. Like, and it made me really proud. And instead of going like, oh, I biffed the end of it. Then, you know, I went like, you know what? I'm going to pat myself on the back because the solo I nailed, like, I'm going to let myself have this one, you know? And I, I feel like having yourself, like letting yourself be proud of what you've done, but go, okay, I biffed that thing. I got to pay more attention. I feel like that's the, the balance to be struck. Um, but music, uh, music aside, like, I mean, we could sit and talk about the mentality of a gigging musician or a guitar player all day long, but there's two things I kind of want to touch on that are in the gear news. And we posted, uh, I, uh, we shared this to the, uh, Tom Bros podcast page, which is over on Facebook. I'm working on the YouTube. I've just, I've been, I've been busy, um, with a lot of other stuff going on. Um, I'm going to get that up and running and get, get them put up in on YouTube in that form as well. Um, but one of the things that I kind of want to touch on, and this is something really, really quick because I honestly had never heard of this box before. Um, and 
and I was I was cruising uh uh hashtag not sponsored but could be one day uh Sweetwater I was cruising Sweetwater um just as I do you know to see what's new what's exciting and there was a little pedal that was reissued recently that kind of made me confused if that makes sense um let me see if i can find it it was uh it was by ibanez and it's one of their old okay. school uh drive boxes that they um that they reissued you give me a second i'll find it here um and it was surprised okay. because like ibanez pretty much i mean there are some things that ibanez has put out over the years of course, everyone knows the Tube Screamer. Like, you know, I mean, it's 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 completely, you know, it is what it is. Um, and I don't know if this is something that was, like, put out, if I just missed it. Because I try and stay up as much as I can about, like, limited edition pedals and stuff. Right now, on, on Sweetwater, um, Ibanez reissued the Ibanez OD850 Overdrive, which is like an overdrive fuzz circuit. Do you know that pedal? Hmm. I'm not familiar with it. And I, I'm going on, I'm on Sweetwater's website right now. Oh, here we go. Did you say the OD850? Is that the one you're talking about? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I've, I've seen that pedal. I'm not familiar with it, but I've seen it kind of going through going through its paces, so to speak. But that's, I mean, yeah, that's an old, that's an old pedal. And it, and, and it's kind of like a deep cut. Like late seventies. It's like, yeah, it's like a deep cut, like kind of thing. And I saw it and I saw it was a limited edition and they have it on a price drop right now. Um, and, and I was kind of, first yeah. of all, I, Ivan has apparently put out a lot of like kind of oddball, goofy pedals. Um, you know, like there's, there's ones that are like, um, uh, you know, there's all kinds of like fuzz boxes, there's distortion boxes, there's, um, delays, um, the flanger, you know, the old, um, uh, what's it called? The finger flanger, the butterfly finger thing. Like Paul, Paul Gilbert. Oh had yeah. I think his, Paul Gilbert was using. Yeah. Paul. Well then Paul Gilbert had his own, the airplane flanger. I think is what it was called. Um, and I had one of those one time. It was a great okay. flanger, but it, it, it was so noisy. <laughs> it was such a noisy yeah. flanger. It was a really cool, like neat little tool to play around with. But for me, it wasn't my thing, but like the OD eight fifty, maybe I'm just not deep enough into the pedal world to remember it or know it, but it, to me, I'm looking at it, and the first thing that pops into my head, of course, is, oh, it's like it's going to be like a boss uh, a DS1 kind of thing. But apparently it's not. Apparently it's like a, it's it's a like overdrive fuzz. Like, I don't, I don't know. Like, it was just it was something that I saw like that a, I, a I thought. Yeah, it was something that like I, I saw and I thought it'd be interesting to to bring up I because I know you you kind of have a a little bit more knowledge of like older like not offbeat but like the the fuzz thing like Obscure. you you seem to like fuzz better than I do um yeah I uh, I just remember being really young and getting to listen to a lot of the old getting to listen to a lot of classic 
rock stations um, where they were playing. I mean, it, for me, it was a lot of Hendrix and a lot of um, God. Well, even with the grunge bands that were coming out in the in the early part of the '90s, like Smashing Pumpkins and Meat Puppets, and even to a point, bands like Soundgarden. Um, even though they weren't using a ton of like fuzz pedal. Well, I mean, obviously, look at Billy Corgan. You know, he was big, the big, the guy who kind of brought the big muff back into the into the fray. Um, but just hearing that those sounds and then going and reading guitar magazines and seeing, oh, they're fuzz pedals. I just kind of assumed, oh, okay, you want overdrive? You want like a dirty sound? You have to use a fuzz pedal. And that, so and that... yeah, I kind of got myself acclimated with fuzz at an early age. Well, and that's, and, and I mean, the Big Muff, there's so many iterations of the Big Muff. There's, you know, just even looking at Electro Harmonics now, they reissued, they have the, the Green Russian one, the Triangle one, the Op Amp one, which yep. apparently is the, the Billy Corgan one, um, the, and then the right. Ram's Head one. Yeah, and pretty much like, like there's, there's almost, it's like there's a guitarist that's associated with each one of those. Um, the one that I, the first one that I played was the, I think they called the black Russian one, which was the Sovtech model. It was that one that it honestly, it's like the size of a tablet now. Uh, oh, yeah. it's, it's black with yellow lettering on it. You know, it's yeah. just, it's huge. And I just remember plugging into one of those at KNS in Williamsport and I'm like, okay, that is fun. That's a lot of fun. Yeah, I... Um, but yeah, it's, there's so many, I think there's five different versions of the big muff that you can, that you can get your hands on today. Yeah. And I mean, the, the, the cool thing, like, I mean, fuzzes have, I I've owned my fair share of fuzzes over the years. Like just cause like I've had, I had the, um, the tone reaper by, uh, earthquaker. I had, cause I was on a big, um, uh, Joe Bonamassa kick. I had the, mm-hmm. The uh the Joe Bonamassa fuzz space, the one that was copper. Um and honestly, I because I didn't know how to use a fuzz face right at the time, I just knew it was a collector's item. Um Mm. I I didn't know how to use one right, so I thought it was a standalone box. The fuzz faces are not. The fuzz faces you got a front end an already driven amp with. Yeah, almost like a you take like a plexi or like a uh, um, a basement circuit, which I mean, that, that's another that's a story that's a topic for another time. The difference between like a, a plexi and a and a basement, yeah, there pretty much isn't a difference. But yeah, anytime you take like a non-master volume amp and crank it, um, you throw a fuzz face in front of it at pretty modest settings, and that's kind of where the magic happens. As a standalone, it's not it's not the best, but um, you know, initially, like, whenever I would think, and that's the pedal I wanted. I wanted to either like the Dal- the Dallas Arbs used, or that oh, what is the Proctavia, the one that looked like a um, the one that looks like an old Star Trek um, phaser. Oh um, yeah, yeah. The, but uh, then, like, hearing Eric Johnson, hearing that. No, go ahead. No, the the Voodoo Labs one, the Proctavia. Like yeah, yeah. I had one yeah. of those too. And then, yeah, those are crazy crazy and i also wanted the um billy gibbons when he was running like 20 of them and on his rig that was stupid and i was wanted one of those but now they're 
but like that's another pedal that's like a, a thousand bucks if you can what? find one. They were so rare anymore. What the Proctavia really? No, not the Proctavia. The um, what is it? The Expandora, the Big Sonics mm. uh, Expandora, the one that Billy Gibbons was using. See, I know the the Big Sonics Expandora from uh, Satriani. Like that's where I heard of the the Expandora the first time. Um, because he used one. Oh, I didn't. I didn't know he was using one. Yeah, he used. Uh, from what I understand, and again, it's been a long time since. Um, uh. I looked at his gear history. By the way, if you do want to know about Satriani's gear history, an accurate like accounting of like what he used on what album, go and buy the book Strange Beautiful Music. Um, I loaned that to someone, okay. and I have no what did I loan that to you? Um, I don't believe so. Okay, I loaned that copy to someone because I probably would have given that back to you. Um, okay. but in the back. In the like in the index, they had a list of all the gear he used on every album, and the two the one thing that popped up that I thought was hilarious that popped up that turned out on an album was a little gorilla amp. Yeah, I've heard that. I've heard that many times, um, and I can't remember what album he used it on. I think it was relatively early in his career, but I remember when he had that. I don't know if you remember when he had that endorsement with PV. And he was using the um, was it the super colossal, which was like a five watt. Oh, the mini A amp. Yeah, the The mini mini colossal. Colossal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those are dude. I remember those. Whenever he left PV, you could find those for nothing. They were they were like like people were closing out on it, and you could find them for like what one ninety nine buck fifty, like, and yeah, if even that. Now I haven't actually looked those up on reverb. I haven't even thought about those little things in a long time. Um, but ne- never, nevertheless, like we could, again, we could keep going on, on gear and we can get back to it. But the other thing that I wanted to bring up was, and we posted this over again, I mentioned on the, the tone bros podcast, by the way, sorry if this, this podcast is kind of uh, all over the place. We're all over the place right now. <laughs> so, um, yeah, yeah, we're kind of, we're kind of all over the place right now. So, but the other thing was, uh, the news, uh, you know, we posted saying that the Adam Jones VOS and, uh, age signed Les Pauls had been released and were immediately sold out. However, uh, <laughs> there's a link over on our, our, uh, Facebook page to an article stating that a giant amount of these Adam Jones Les Pauls that were inbound to again Sweetwater, uh, and I'm gonna go ahead and see if I can pull up our page so that I don't misquote anything. But there was a giant shipment of these Adam Jones Les Pauls that were stolen while they were in route to Sweetwater, and yeah, here it is. Um, uh, a pallet containing 13 Adam Jones 1979 Les Paul custom guitars in Silverburst were stolen. Um, they were uh, 13. Uh, these, uh, let's see, 13 Adam Jones. 13 of them were stolen, and three of which were the uh, uh, the uh, signed um, the signed ones, the ones that were limited to 79, and then the. Uh, all the other ones, the other 10 were the VOS ones. 
Um, now, I don't. How does that happen? I I hate to say conspiracy. Um, you know, I'm a big Joe Rogan fan, so of course I know a thing or two about conspiracy <laughs> theories. But I often wonder if that's a um, love you, Joe. No, uh, I often wonder if that was maybe an inside job because that's a very specific uh, acquisition. It's not like they carjacked, um, or excuse me, like they, they, you know, yeah, they carjacked a rig that, you know, just happened to have gear on it, and they took this, they took this, they took that. They specifically took the Gibson uh, Adam Jones models. As far as we know, there was nothing else taken. So, and I, if I'm if I'm wrong on this, please comment. Please, you know, let me know because I don't like to misinform. But it just seems like there that was the only thing that was taken. So to me, that seems like a very specific, um, a very specific theft. It sounds like somebody knew what they had when they had it. To me, that sounds like an inside job. Now, whether it was or not, that that's between God and the uh, and the thief. But to me, it just seems all, all too suspicious. So I'm hoping I'm wrong about that, and I'm hoping that they're that they're returned relatively well, quickly. But and the, I, I don't the, want to say it's not surprising, but it's really not surprising. The thing that's difficult about these guitars, especially the the signed ones, um, and also it was four of the uh, the vintage or the the age signed ones uh, that were taken. Um, the problem with those is whenever Gibson does something like this where they have an exact replica, like the which in this case would be the age signed ones, they're an exact replica of Adam Jones's um guitar. Um yeah. the problem is when they do the serial numbers for them on those the the age signed ones, they do Adam Jones's serial number. So the only way to really tell that it's which one it is, is to look at the numbering because each one was signed and numbered by Adam Jones. So you're seeing serial number 73529531, number 42. Seven, oh, you know what? Someone went for the meme. 73529531, number 69. Um, uh, but that, But that's the thing is that it's like, so that's why people thought it's like, okay, it was a theme. Like it was just like happenstance that got stolen, but there was nothing like that palette contained those Adam Jones guitars. No other palettes were stolen. It wasn't like the entire shipment was taken. It wasn't like other things were taken and pulled out of, you know, whatever. It was those specific guitars. Like you said, it's a little yeah it's it's fishy it is super fishy and the thing i feel bad for is the people who ordered them like because the the vos were ten thousand dollars or not vos the uh aged and signed ones brand new were ten thousand dollars you know yeah, like that's <laughs> yeah somebody knew what they were doing yeah, and and the thing is, the question is, um, now now here this kind of transitions over from the the terrible, um, the 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 shitty thing about this, like aside from the fact that they were stolen, and that's a bummer. Like, the thing that sucks is like, or uh, that 
my god, dude, Tone Bro One, I am all over the. Pl- I don't know what is wrong with me lately. <laughs> Maybe I'm not getting enough sleep, or whatever. It could be, but um, my point, my point was going to be, uh, yeah, right. Um, beer, yeah. Uh, the point with this was, um, are these get? This was a, a comment that was brought up once they released the actual price of these guitars, and. Again, we reference him a lot, but Trogley's Guitar Show, he got one of each. So, mm-hmm. and he just did his reviews on them and tone samples. And it's and he compares yep. them with a I think he said his is an 81 silver burst, an 80 silver burst or something like that. So it's it's in the family of those like um are those guitars worth that price? Well, again, that's that's such a, a controversial topic because, or is it is it valuable because it's Adam Jones, or is it valuable because it's kind of an odd, I don't want to say an oddball, but for the last I don't know how many years, people have been kind of popping their load over Norland era Les Pauls or Norland era Gibsons period, even though it, you know to most collectors era is something that a lot of people scoff at because it wasn't it wasn't good quality wood the constructions were were supposedly shoddy but they're i mean by all accounts they're they're still fantastic instruments but you wonder how much of that is the mystique behind it like talked about before you know is there seems like there's more mystique around that than there is around the era which was be like the night the late the, 50s the what era i lost 60s. you there for a second what era i just i just called i just call it like the genesis era because that's not for no other reason other than that's kind of when they when gibson's kind of got their ground um uh, got their feet on the ground and really started to establish themselves as like a real contender is that like 57 to 61 or 62 era that's right. kind of viewed as like the Holy Grail, but are they any any better than the Norland eras from construction standpoint? Maybe, yeah. There was some cost cutting. You could say the same thing about uh, versus post CBS Fender guitars. Uh, I know some people love uh, late '60s, early '70s, mid '70s. I know people who absolutely hate them, but I think it's just a lot of that might be um, an existential thing or. Um, you know, an aesthetic thing, but really, yeah, beauty is in the, the eye of the beholder. So, you know, a lot for us to say whether it's good or not. I just, you know, I think a lot of it is hype, but, you know, this is not somebody coming from somebody who doesn't have a stockpile of these guitars sitting in their closet. That well, yeah. Like, I mean, and, and the thing with, I, I remember whenever I really started getting into the gear world, um, the Norlin era and, and the like late 70s. Like you could get like, a like, and again, there's probably a lot of people that are listening to this. They're scoffing at me and going, what does this dumbass know? Like, I remember seeing late seventies, Les Pauls, um, be going for like 1800, 2200, 2400, mm-hmm. like in now to be fair in like, you know, closet like closet classic or gigged, you know, like players grade, you know, would be lower. Right. But like, you know, I, I, 
I remember them being considered not very valuable because people were like, oh, they're really heavy. The finishes are thick. Like, it's just not, they're not as good as the, the 50s or 60s. And like you said, I think it's because of the generation that is in, in, in the thick of collecting now. Um, right. You're, you're seeing, you're seeing those guitars be more valuable. Like it's the same thing with seventies, uh, post CBS, uh, strats, you know, right. like the, the one now for me, they were always like, you know, the creme de la creme of strats because Malmsteen played one, you know, I, yeah. I, I love, and plus the big seventies headstock, like that, come on, it just looks amazing. Um, yeah. and then when they, when they transitioned back to the smaller headstock, like Dave Gilmore, uh, was using, you know, he had a bunch of mid set, early seventies, mid seventies strats that people, you know, I mean, obviously you saw him, how much he was selling those to, was it Christie's? I think he sold yeah. a bunch of his off within the last few years and they went for huge bank. So obviously well, again, that's David there's Gilmore. There's a name attached though. to it, but the quality has to be there. Right. Yeah, like I yeah, mean, there, there's a name that goes. Yeah, there's if it's a name that's attached to it, that immediately exponentially increases the value. Which that you know, I mean, we'd be stupid not to acknowledge that. Right, and and the, I think now Gibson obviously made a shit ton of money off of this Adam Jones Les Paul. My my oh, thing is, why are they leaving money on the table by not making the making a standard production version? That's, you know, around three grand or why are they not also maybe kicking around adding in an, an Epiphone version? Like, yeah, I was just going to say that because they could, in, in all seriousness, they could feasibly make an Epiphone for eight ninety nine. Uh, well, they already had a They already have a silver burst Les Paul custom. It's I think it's either five nine or six nine nine on most of the outlets. So, I mean, obviously it's. Obviously, they've flirted with the idea of it, but maybe putting Adam Jones' name on—I don't know. Maybe it's a—maybe um, it has to do with him. I—I I don't know. I don't know. Maybe he was difficult to work with. Who knows? I can't imagine that that was the case. But there's a lot of factors that we will probably never be privy to. But it just—it does make you wonder whether, or it just makes you wonder why. You know, if that's easy money for them, why not? Why not go further with that? But what? Well, and I mean, it could be the perfect Gibson it, we're talking about. Well, it, it could just like we're sitting here and putting the impetus on Gibson, but like it could very well be Adam Jones saying, "I don't like that." Yeah. Tool has never been. I mean, you you see Tool merch out there, and you see like you know posters and patches and shirts and you know glassware, and you know you see all the standard merchy kind of stuff. Um, but tool, despite being a money-making machine, they never have seemed to bow to the idea of like, if Gibson came to Adam Jones and said, Hey, we want to do an exact replica of VOS. And then we also want to do a standard version and an Epiphone version. I could see Adam Jones just being like, look, I, I don't, you know, I don't want everybody having it or I don't want, you know, I don't need it. Like, I don't need my guitar being mm -hmm. that. Like, he could very well make that choice, you know? And and you see right. that in some signature model. I mean, Epiphone does that with almost 
all their signature guitars except for Matt Heafy's. Like you you and um now like Lizzie Hale and the like Matt Heafy, Lizzie Hale and um uh uh, uh Brendan Small. Like they were like their ongoing signature guitars. But um you know when you see stuff like the Brent Hines Silverburst V, that was only made for a couple years. You see yep. the um, the Richie Faulkner V. I didn't think that was limited edition, but apparently it was limited edition. Like they do, like like shorter runs of signature guitars for Epiphone version. Why not do the same thing and and, and say like, hey, we're doing we're only going to do one thousand seven hundred and seventy nine of the Epiphones. Right. You know, have it be more, but you know, have it be a lower cost for people, you know, the, the dregs of the gear world, like you and me, uh, to get into, you know, that vibe. But then again, like you said, they put out this, the silver burst version. You could just go buy a Duncan distortion and throw it in there and flip the neck pickup. Yep. Yep. You know, if you want that vibe. Yep. Much was into it. It's not like, um, a Peter Green Les Paul. It's not like uh, there's, you know, there is some mystique with that instrument because of the time that it was created and the that were done to it. As far as we know, the Adam Jones is a bone stock guitar that he just swapped the bridge pickup out in and, and flipped the neck pickup around. Anybody can do that. I mean, you could argue that do the same thing to the, you know, the greenie, but it's one of those things I understand, like the guys in tool, they're not wanting for anything anymore. Um, and, and I can understand like having a mystique and creating, uh, something special, uh, like, um, like Adam Jones would want, uh, I'm sure. But it's just one of those things that like, I think if enough people make noise and I think the problem is that the news of those guitars getting stolen um, and how limited and everything they are has kind of overshadowed the, when are you going to make a more cost effective version? You know what I mean? They were really pushing for some of these signature models. Like you mentioned, Matt Heafy and, um, Lizzie Hale, and also uh, Vivian Campbell from, uh, Def Leppard and, uh, Dio, you know, he had, he has a signature Gibson model, but they were really pushing the Epiphone. And I think that was kind of by his design too, where he didn't want somebody spending $10,000 on a guitar just because it had his name on it. He wanted something that, you know, a, a kid could go out and, and pick up at a, at a local store and not, you know, kill his college fund. So I think that might have been by design as well. And and same thing with Matt Heafy, too. I know he was, at least from what I had read, he was very specific about making sure that his model was not overpriced, which and, is why kind of he was really endorsing Epiphone's. Well, and, and you know... The Vivian Campbell one I loved, except for that headstock. The headstock yeah. looked goofy. I'm sorry. Like, I know, like, it just did. And I think if it would have come out whenever they revamped the Epiphone headstock, um, I'd be a little more on it. Because Blacklist Paul with X2Ns, like, come on. It it looked great. Right. And it sounded awesome. But that right. headstock just, to me, looks so goofy. Yeah, and I, I hate to say it, and it sounds kind of a, like a petty thing, but Epiphone's headstocks to me, that's that, it, it's almost a deal breaker. 
Walker. Like, and I've played some really amazing Epiphone Les Pauls and some amazing Epiphone SGs, but I didn't pull the trigger on it because to me it almost seemed like I was not cheating, but it's almost like it's almost like that was my rebound guitar. <laughs> and I know it sounds terrible, but it's that headstock just doesn't do anything for me. You know, yeah. like if you play a Squire, it still has that classic Fender headstock. If you play like a, a Charvel, nobody cares if it's the Me- if it's a Mexican version or a made in US version. Nobody cares about that. But play an Epiphone, uh, it, it's glaring. Like it's obvious. And and an Epiphone th- guitar again with th- the th- other, you know. No, go ahead. I don't know. I was just gonna say, uh, even with like Paul Reed Smith, you know, the SE guitars are are absolutely giggable, and you know, we we can both attest to that. The, ESP LTD is absolutely giggable and the headstocks look the same. And I, and I hate to be, um, I hate to have the headstock shape be a deal breaker, but the Epiphone headstock, at least on those body styles to me, is just un like unacceptable. And I know that's horrible. And a lot of people are going to be like, Oh, fuck you, dude. But it's, that's just how I feel about it. Well, and, and I, and I, I get it. I mean, like, you know, the more I go along, I used to, and, and I still am to an extent, like, I don't care if a guitar is, you know, one of the goofiest colored looking guitars or whatever. I don't like as far as looks go, as long as it sounds and plays the best, I will play it. Right. You know, my example was always I don't care if right. it's a pink Paisley Telecaster. If it sounds great, I'm going to use it. Um, but right. the there are some things that I go, hmm, and one of them is like headstock look like that's the thing i saw the vivian campbell and they showed the picture of the body with neck and i was like "Ooh, that would be awesome and then they showed the headstock and it was like the elite heads it was it was the elite uh headstock and to me i went ah it looks like a headstock off of a 335 like i'm like ah right like if they would have waited until that like i said this year they redid to make it more look like the open book headstock. If they would have waited for that one, I'd, I really would have probably like, I, I probably would have pulled the trigger on one of the Vivian Campbell's because yeah. Epiphone has stepped up their, their quality control quite a bit. And right. You know, if you want something that's going to be a beater, you're not looking for an investment. Like if it's something that you're like, I want that vibe but I don't want to break the bank. They're perfect. And like I right. used uh, two years ago, uh, my buddy Ryan let me borrow his Brent Hines Plying V uh, as a guitar specifically tuned for when we play Children of the Grave. And um, yep. and I, I also used it on another tune as well. But I'll tell you what, the neck was enormous but the thing played and sounded awesome, like really good. And I, I almost pulled the trigger on one sad Chuck. Oh, that's the other thing. You're going to hear a trend. <laughs> sad Chuck bought, like decided to buy happy Chuck, a guitar and sad Chuck wanted to, um, buy a flashy show guitar. And I was dead set on getting one of the Brent Hines right. V's. But I thought, ah, oh, that neck is so big. I don't know if I want to do that because my hand would get tired with it after a while. Um, and so I went with that Schecter E1, that uh, the 
the the purple Explorer with the Floyd and everything. And it was a right. great guitar, but I should have gone with that Brent Hines guitar, man. It just it was a it was a riff machine. Well, and I think hindsight's twenty twenty, and um, you know, it's kind of funny. Like Sad Matt and Happy Matt share a bank account, so there there's you know, Matt, Sad Matt can't really buy Happy Matt anything without Happy Matt having to go. To go what? No, I totally get what you're saying. Um, but do, do you have you ever played one of the the Epiphone Explorers? Because to me, I have I have a soft spot for Explorers, um, only because I've only ever played maybe one, and it was one of the best guitars I ever played. So I didn't know if the next shape was any. I know you said the the Brent Hines had a baseball bat neck essentially. I didn't know if those were any any more comfortable. Oh, dude, other other Epiphones, like, that's the thing, is, like, I did get to play a Richie Faulkner, and it felt like a 60s Slim Taper neck. Like, it was it was okay. exactly what you think. The Brent Hines was different, and it just had an astronomically big freaking neck. Like, um, and, and, and that's the thing, is, like, for rhythms and stuff, it was awesome. But, yeah. it, man, I'll tell you what, it, it like... For solos, that neck didn't thin out or change as as it went up. It got bigger. <laughs> like I mean, or Jesus. well, it it didn't it, it like it it like it got a little bit wider, so it made it feel bigger. But the thickness didn't change, so it was just thick the whole way up. It was a thick boy, um, and on one hand, that, that that's great because like that's exactly what Brent Hines wanted, and that's what they did but i'll tell you what it was it really it really was a chore to play that guitar but it looked and sounded amazing so at what point do you give up on like okay i'm gonna forego and know that this guitar is a little bit more of a challenge to play but i want that sound and i want that look yeah you know i don't know that's that's kind of how um i kind of felt that no, I was gonna say I felt that with um that Balagir that you let me borrow. The neck on that was it wasn't that it was too thick, it was just really rounded. Quite what I was used to. So for me that was the only thing holding it back. Wise though, it was perfect. Which from every every spec on it. Oh, it was the uh the archetype, the the, the Arnold Arnold Plays model. Oh, that one, one that's right. The guard and- on it. And I actually, I have that back in my possession. Oh, cool. I I didn't pick it up. I'm selling it for... Okay. So I bought it directly from Arnold. um, Okay. And then I sold it to one of my students. He he loved it. And... Yeah, I remember you were saying that. And then a couple weeks ago, he came to me and said, Hey, man, um, do you know anyone who wants to buy the archetype? And I was like, dude, why? And he said, it's just not me. He loves it. He likes the way it sounds. He likes the way it plays. But he said, it's just not me. And I get that. Like, that's cool. And I said, I'll tell you. And I had a set. I had a seven string that I, um, I wanted to, uh, he wanted a seven string and I had that hardtail, um, uh, RG from 99, um, mm-hmm. and it's a great guitar and I loved it, but I'm like, dude, I'm, I like Floyd's. I just do like with an RG, I like a Floyd. I can't help it. I, I just, or not a Floyd and edge. Um, I, I just like it to me. 
That's the RG thing. Um, and so I said, I'll tell you what. Why don't you give me back the archetype? You can have the seven string. And when, when I sell this, I'll take the money from the seven string and give you the rest. Like, that's what it was. It was basically I'm, I'm brokering the deal for him. And okay. I'll tell you what. I put, I put it up. Nothing. No bites. Nothing. <laughs> like, I can't. I, and I'm trying. Like, it's just, I don't know if it's right now. I had, I actually had someone ask uh, on one of the, the forums. He asked me, he, he said, why is this guitar getting passed around so much? And it really hasn't. It went from Arnold to me to John, and now John wants to find it another home. And I even got rid of it because it's not a bad guitar. It just wasn't me. Like, I like the Toro, right. you know? Like, I have that Toro. It, it's exactly what I wanted. I, right. You know, that's not, the, you can't help it. That's like, getting passed around. It's, yeah. Right. Yeah, it's not getting passed around. It just It's got kind of by happenstance. In a short amount of time, it just happened to fall in the hands of a few people. It's not, it's not being passed around because it's defective. That's just the nature of the business. Right. And and that's you the know? thing is I'm like, okay, well, this is going to take a little bit longer than I thought. And that's fine. Like, I mean, it, it, it and and I think if that had the slim taper neck instead of the, the comfy C, I don't think I would have gotten rid of it in the first place. Right. But like. I like a thinner neck, man. I just do. Like, big necks. Again, that's why I didn't go with the Brent Hines, because it's a bigger neck. Like, And there's a lot of people out there who like a neck that, that has a little more substance to it. I just don't. I'm not... You know, I, I like I like fast, easy-playing necks. But then again, I don't have small hands, but I don't have real big hands either. I have average-sized hands. Right. Ladies. The, um... Uh... <laughs> And it, uh, like for, for me, for me, that, that neck that's, that's more of a C shape, um, versus like maybe a thin U or D shape again, ladies, the, um, uh, it's just, um, it's just starting into a whole other kind of podcast. Yeah. Right. Um, the, it's it's just not as good. It sounds great. Like I mean, it has the Fishman Devin Townsends in it. So like, it and and the way that it's set up for uh, the active, the high gain active mode, or a more of a path style, and then you can coil split it as well. It has a lot of great tunes in, or uh, t- t- tunes tones in there. But again, it's just for me. It's just not right. And for John, he was like, nah, it's just, you know, after having it for, and he had it for like damn near a year, you know, it's not yeah. like John had it for a week and then wanted to get rid of it. Like he had it for a year. He lived with it for a year. Um, so it just needs to find a new home. Uh, so anyone out there listening and you want a, uh, custom built, uh, Balaguer archetype that was owned by Arnold plays guitar, myself and John Sahoni, get a hold of me. Um, that that kind of leads me on to my next point. So one of the things I thought about, I keep thinking about things like regular segments we can do. And of course we do our recommendations. Um, but I thought about this one as well. We could call it the, uh, the, <laughs> I don't know if that would be in good taste. I thought of multiple names for this. Um, uh, we could call it, um, I thought about just calling it gear acquisition uh, uh, syndrome. 
just straight up. Yeah. Um, I thought about calling it um, Trade Time. Uh, the other one I thought about calling it, and I didn't think it was in good taste, was calling it the Gas Chamber. Um, uh, <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> yeah, I didn't think about calling it that. So we'll just we'll just call it um, we'll call it uh, Gear Acquisition uh, Syndrome. Uh, uh, the section here. So I figured every time we do one of these podcasts, we could talk about something, a piece of gear that maybe drifted in and out of our transom recently. And I have a pretty interesting one. Actually, Matt was the first person to hear about this one. Um, so I've been sitting on a line six beta two, which was one of my bucket list pieces of gear. And I had a buddy tell me, he, like I told him, yeah, I want to get rid of the Veta 2. And he said, well, I thought that was a bucket list piece of gear. And I'm like, yeah, I've had a lot of bucket list pieces of gear uh, throughout the years. And they never usually stick around. Just because something's on the bucket list doesn't mean that I'm going to keep it forever. It's just I'd like to have one of those one day. Um, like like I said, a block letter 5150, uh, Mesa Road King, uh, uh, Mesa Mark IV, um, I didn't own it, but I got to play around with a Triaxis for a while. Um, uh, uh, an ADA MP1. Um, like I've I've been very fortunate through trading and finding good deals to come across this stuff. But recently, I had put my Veta two up for sale, and I had a lot of low ball offers, tons of low ball offers, people trying to trade me stuff that's not worth the Veta two and mine was in gig shape. You know, it's not pristine. Um, it was upgraded to the newest firmware or the last firmware they did. So it's, you know, the latest Veta at the time before they discontinued it. Um, and I also had the FBV longboard that went with it. Um, and I posted it on Craigslist and was sifting through all of the spam emails and lowball offers and I got a message from a fella and he asked me, he said, Hey man, would you accept trades? And I said, I guess, why not? Let's see what you got. And he listed off some gear, like some, you know, import fenders, some squires, a couple Epiphones, you know, some pedals. And then I saw Ignator Armageddon. Um, mm-hmm. And I have a love hate relationship with Ignator stuff. Um, Everything I've played, I've found adequate. Like, I'm like, okay, the Ignator stuff, I'm like, it's it's good. Like, the, the big thing that Ignator does really, 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 really well is their cleans. Their cleans are so good. And he told me he had an Ignator Armageddon. And I told him, I said, man, you know, I don't have cash to put towards anything right now. Um, I said, but I like the the look of an uh, of the Ignator Armageddon because you see the vengeances pop up. You very rarely see the Armageddons. Um, and the the vengeance is a stripped down Armageddon. That's all it really is. Um, but the the in case you don't know about the Ignator Armageddon, it was Ignator's like real first step into the modern high gain amp thing, uh, or if you will, the will it gent crowd. Um, and <laughs> I mean, that's what it was. And um, what they did was it's a two channel, well, a three channel amp channels two and three have a shared EQ. 
Um, it has all the normal Ignator mini switches on it. It has uh, bright, gain, and tight are the three little dip switches on each channel. Um, but the thing that this thing has, and it kind of paved the way, because I can't think of an amp really before this that did this. It integrated MIDI switching. It had independent... Uh, well, I mean, the, the Road King did it, but like the Ignator Armageddon had independent reverb controls. It had a separate master mid-range. So it kind of functions sort of like a clean mid-range boost. So it was like a tube screamer without a gain boost, if you will. It's a mid-range control and then a level control. So you have a master mid-range... And then it had the ISP decimator uh, circuit inside of it. So you don't even need an outboard noise gate. The ISP decimator, I think the G-string is what it, the circuit it was, you know, in there. It had the ISP decimator in it. So you have a noise gate. And I told him, I said, hey, man, you know, I don't. And he said, no, I, I do a straight trade. And I went, are you serious? He said, yeah. So wow. I said, okay. We met up. And a real great guy. Real nice. Knows his gear. We chit-chatted for a while. And did the swap. The uh, The only thing is it didn't come with the foot switch. So I got to hunt down a foot switch for it. And the foot switch is cool because it operates on XLR. Hmm. It's a standard XLR. It's really cool. And um, uh, it integrated, like I said, MIDI controls. So it's MIDI capable. And, um, it, you know, it, 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 I, I looked at it. And the only thing it needs is the caps on where the handle on top of the amp where it connects to the head. It just needs those little rubber caps. And two of the screws... One for a speaker out and one for the effects loop in. The little, like, mounting screws were gone. I have replacements of those. So, I mean, that was an easy fix. But I I got into an Ignator Armageddon. I traded it for the, the Veta 2. So that's what's drifted into my yeah. transom. I'm sure you have questions about it. But uh, that's what's drifted <laughs> into my my world right now what about you well i have to there's a couple things i have to address first um before that i just when you had mentioned about naming this particular segment i immediately thought gaslighting with matt and chuck because <laughs> that's kind of what we're doing <laughs> but in a way i like that you know what that's yeah, it totally. we're calling it gaslighting i love it gaslighting yeah i just thought about that because we yeah uh we'll, we'll have to talk about gaslighting in private um as to the significance behind that, cause I definitely have gone through some of that in my life. But yeah, gaslighting with Matt and Chuck, I think, is the win. So, um, but as far as Ignator goes, it's it's so weird because I I still have my Tweaker Forty. Uh, I haven't used it really in a while, um, but I will attest their cleans are fantastic, some of the best in the business. Um, now, if I remember correctly, the Armageddon was that not. The amp that was being used by Greg uh, from Mudvayne. I can't remember his last Greg Tribbett, Tribbett, I think is his name. He was uh, using that when he was in, yeah, he was using that when he was in Hell Yeah. 
Yes. He, I'm pretty um, sure. Yeah, he, he was the first uh, big endorsee of it. Um, right, right. The only other person that I saw using one that was, not, and no offense to the artist roster of Ignator, but like the one that really was right. like in the mainstream was Dan Donegan from Disturbed. Yeah. Um, he apparently was, live yeah, yeah. was was using the Ignator, Armageddon, and another amp. I want to see a Bogner or an Engel. Um, but he was using both of them. And so he was an Ignator user as well. Well, kind of interesting tidbit. Maybe this is the conspiracy theorist in me again. But so both uh, Greg Tribbett and Dan Onigan, from what I remember, were big into the the old Randall MTS modules. Yes. Well, who was the who was the principal designer of the MTS modules? Well, gosh golly, Matt, that would be Bruce Ignator. <laughs> that would be Bruce Ignator. Gosh golly. Yeah. And now, now from what I understand, those guys have switched over to Synergy. And who's the principal designer over at Synergy? Take a wild guess. Friedman. Dave Friedman. (laughs) Well, he's a part of it. I guess they're doing that boutique amp thing, which is, um, as I I understand it, it's Dave Friedman, Mike Saldano, and uh, Bruce Eggnator. So from what I gather, Bruce Eggnator is like the guy that pretty much put all that shit together. Um, well, I mean, he was doing that back in the 80s with the modular preamps. Um, the, I think it was called the Ignator M4. Yes. If I remember correctly, it was a four-panel modular preamp. So, But, yeah, it's it kind of sucks that Ignator doesn't get the, the, the credibility or the, the street cred that they, that they deserve. Um, I think a lot of that is because they were outsourcing a lot to China. And I know, like, with the first couple of runs of the Tweaker series, uh, the, 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 like, Mark arc one version of the rebel and also the renegade which for me is a um that's a that's a bucket list amp right there um they were having problems with their transformers uh overheating um right and they were and then they switched i think over to to what's it mercury magnetics transformers um and then they they pretty much alleviated that problem but they kind of had a negative uh reputation after that because of the 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 reliability of it but well and um but yeah ignator as i understand they don't release much uh products today anymore they're well they're low-key i mean bruce ignator i mean the man the man is a legend and their amps are you can still buy their amps like i mean the you know i actually messaged because i went looking for an armageddon foot switch and i can't find one Mm. like i just can't like i'm no one's selling them used I couldn't find an outlet to buy it. So I went, screw it. And I went to Ignator's website, which no offense, Ignator, do yourself a solid and upgrade your website from 2001. Uh, it, it, um, it, it looks like it was built. <laughs> yeah. it, 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 it's a rough looking website, but it's all there and, 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 and it functions fine. Um, you want to talk about bucket list amps. One that I want is the Ignator tour master. That amp yep. is so awesome. Yep. It's like a good version of the TSL. Like that's what I, it's a four channel version of the TSL. And it's, I played one. It's the best Marshall you'll ever play. Like it's, it's really good, but that's beside yeah. the point. I emailed them and I said, Hey, I just picked up a, an Armageddon used. Is it possible for me to get a hold of a foot switch? And I waited a couple days and they responded and they told me, they said, we have them in stock. Uh, you can buy one and they're X amount of dollars. 
And for me, the the thing that that I'm torn on here, the reason why I would buy the foot switch is if I wanted to resell it. Because right. then I'd be like, hey, you got the foot switch here. It's all there. It's the whole package. And that way I could ask the kind of market value for it. Without the foot switch, it's, you know... But the thing is, because it's MIDI compatible, I thought to myself, I was like, you know what I could do if I really wanted to haul around a 412 again? I could use the Eggnator and then use my Helix as in the four cable method and run a MIDI cable and control everything from my Helix. You could, yeah. Yeah, like, so if I, if the thing is with Hellbent, we're running direct. Like, we have solidified our setup into running completely direct. And so, like, trying to go to my band and say, hey, I want to run a 120-watt amp again. Um, That's a tall order uh, because one of the things that we take pride on is the fact that we don't, murder the audience with volume we don't like we we have a good solid sound that puts out enough volume and it's balanced and you can hear everything like and you know i have i run um a uh, powered monitor so i get some stage volume from my helix plus man i'll tell you what i don't miss hauling around a big heavy tube amp and a 412 (laughs) Um, but it'd be nice. It'd be nice to do things old school. You know what I mean? Like, I love the way we do things and I love my helix and I love the sound I get, but it'd be nice to just kind of show up to a gig, have your amps, mic them up and do minimal stuff. You know what I mean? Like just, just raw dog it. Like, you know, um, but like it would be cool to use it because I also didn't realize this until I actually picked up the 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 um Armageddon. It's switchable down to sixty watts. Okay. That's that's a lot more manageable than 120. I mean, I know it doesn't sound like much, but you know, you at least get some of that tube compression and a little bit of that sag, uh, you know, at a more desirable volume. Hundred hundred and twenty watts just that's just for, for the type of gigs that we play. It's just too much. Oh, and absolutely. You're, you're killing the crowd. You're killing the people in the front row. Oh, yeah. M- you know, very like much. My 40-watt tweaker is, I mean, that covers so many bases. I actually, we played a show. We Every once in a while, I mean, we haven't done this here, obviously, because of COVID, but we play at a, at a hunting club and, you know, all wooden uh, stage and the sound just bounces everywhere. And I have to actually keep that amp turned down on pretty low i was going to get an attenuator um just because because i didn't want to have to use it past two uh because even then it's just it's just brutalizing the crowd so um but there is something to be said like you said about that old old school approach of taking a torqued out tube amp and running it through a four by twelve or two four by twelves or what have you and just you know shaking if just hearing air move i think does a lot for your for your stage presence because when you can feel that just you know, hitting you in the ass, so to speak. 
well, you know, if you're into that sort of thing, whatever. <laughs> but you know what I mean. When when you can feel that, when you can feel the earth moving around you, that's uh, that does something for your for your um, stage performance. Oh, dude, it and, just enhances it. I think. Well, and and I have right now the four twelve that I have, um, which I actually need to call uh, our mutual friend Ben. He has my Oaken my Oaken Hollow um, four twelve that he built me. Yeah. I'd love to have that some bitch back. I love that cabinet. Like that every cabinet I play, I go, it's good, but it's not my Oak and Hollow. So I'm going to have to get a hold of Ben. First of all, I haven't talked to Ben in a long time or seen him. So I right. got to give him a call and go visit him one weekend. Second of all, um yep. uh I um the the 412 I'm running right now is a Marshall Mode 4 cab, but it's not the Vintage 30 or the GT 100s or whatever they were um the 1275 i think yeah like i i it's yeah. not that whoever had it before me gutted it and put celestian cream backs in it um oh man now okay. that now that sounds pretty sweet it it does but cream backs if you've ever played one they they have more they're more focused on like uh less of high mids like a v30 they're more like low mids and because mm. the the um the Marshall Mode 4 cab is basically an oversight like it's it's roughly the same dimensions as an o, uh, uh Mesa OS cab um right. which is fine um I love that I like oversized cabs however the cream backs in it like four cream backs to me it's a little too much low end um now the tweaker and anything that I have, I can dial in, you know, my sound to fit that cab, but I would really like to get a pair of, uh, V thirties and do an X pattern, do two cream backs and two V thirties. Um, yeah. Kind of like, kind of like they do in the Bogner Uber cab with yes. the V thirties and the AX, the AT seventies or whatever they are. The AX seventies. Um, I think that would do wonders for that cabinet. Um, I also really miss my orange 412. Um, that thing was amazing. Uh, I actually yeah. traded that orange 412 for this mode four cab. Um, and I took that mode four cab to trade to a fella. And he said, well, those mode four cabs were, they're foreign made, you know, they're not really blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, man, the mode four cabs have, have like a cult following as a great Marshall cab. Yeah, like, I know a lot of people that have used those cabs. Uh, you know, you can say when, what you want to about the Mode Four head, but the cabs people still use those cabs. They were solid. That's 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 bullshit. And the Mode Four They're head, solid cabs. if you go online or if you listen to people, like the Mode Four head is very split down the middle. It's very divisive. People either love it or they hate right. it. The problem with the Mode Four heads is that they were unreliable. Right. They weren't built really well, um, which which reminds me, the the Ignator built in. I think they were built in China. Um, yeah, but the build quality on the thing is incredible. Like it's it's a serious amp that uh, that Armageddon. It is a serious amp. Um, and, you know, the thing with Ignators, like I said, I love the cleans. Love them. 
the distortion, you kind of got to go, you really got to sit with it because especially with high get this high gain thing, you got to really kind of sit with it and play with it. And I think also it was voiced for a cabinet that has V thirties. I really think that amp will come alive when you put it through a cabinet that has V thirties. Um, so, you know, that's just me. Um, I know, like, I I want to bring home my little 115 and see how it sounds through my 115. Um, uh, I think it'll sound nasty good through that. But that's what's right. drifted through my tr- my uh, my transom here. What's what's uh, what gaslighting have you done this week, buddy? <laughs> well, I I really have not done a whole lot with gear uh, since COVID happened. I think. The, the last serious gear like transaction I've made was when you and I made the switch uh, last year with um, the guitar that I affectionately refer to as Mike, um, which is the uh, Tele uh, Sp- uh, Pacifica. I almost said Specifica. What the hell? God, man, stop <laughs> drinking. Uh, but yeah, the Yamaha Pacifica uh, been the only serious thing that I've had. And I, and I do have to say on a side note, it little bit on the last podcast when you were talking about um the guitar that we traded that ibanez yeah. uh because it had sentimentality to you that actually that actually hit me in the feels dude in Aww. all seriousness and i kind of organic prick i felt like a prick because i wanted to go out and use the uh the i the uh yamaha out at a gig and i'm like well no no i can't because you know that, that has sentiment about you too but it's just such a nice guitar but oh, um, no, yeah. it really hit me in the feels, and I didn't want to get too sentimental last time. So. Oh no, that like, dude, that that guitar, but, like I said, I for me, I know it has that Norton in it. My, I, I want to use that guitar. I want to. Yeah. I'm I'm fixing the wind uh, a humbucker. Yeah, my first humbucker uh, is out of phase, <laughs> so that's what I figured out what the problem was. Yeah. So it's kind of a wash um, with that pickup. But I'm gonna wire a new one. I'm gonna do a new one. And I want to put it in in that guitar and see how it sounds. So we'll see. But oh, you know, it's actually an air zone. Now that I now that I remember, it's an air zone that's in the bridge. But either way, yeah, I think I think it's it's a good husk where you can put whatever you want to in it, and it's going to sound great. Really, it, it will. But uh, well, no, and that's the thing, man. Like I I've been really passive on the gear thing. Um. Honestly, because first of all, I'm I'm trying to save money. Second of all, right. the trade market right now is really weird. Um, and I think it's because a lot of people are trying to sell because they're trying to get extra cash. Yeah. Which is fine. But like Yeah. And and honestly, I wanted to sell the 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 Veta 2, but this was just one of those things that an opportunity comes up, you take it. You know what I mean? Um, cause like I said, you don't see, not that they're super valuable, but you don't see a lot of the Armageddon's floating around. Um, cause they were pricey, brand new. No, they were pricey. Right. And I, and you I see think, a lot of the vengeance. I was just going to say, you see a lot of the vengeance. You see a lot of the, um, the early Mark one or the Mark twos of the rebel. I think it's just called the rebel two. And you see quite a few of the renegades floating, many of the Armageddon's uh, floating around, just because they were. I think they were 
kind of a flash in the pan thing, but yeah, they were very pricey when you compare it to uh, a Ven- uh, Vengeance. When you should, you can get that for like four ninety nine on any given day of the week anymore. Yeah, well, I mean, even brand new. I think the Vengeance was eight ninety nine, new. Um, I think I'd have to go back and look, dude. Like because it's been so long, like since I've looked at you know what stuff was new, but I swear I remember the. I remember the Armageddon being like seventeen hundred bucks. Like it was now on the used market. Of course, they're not fetching that pro- anywhere close to that price now. But um, they're they're sitting around. You'll see them run anywhere between six fifty and eight fifty. Um, because they they are a great amp. Like they're really good. Um, and I, I'd love for you to hear it because you're an, you're an Ignator fan. Um. And I need to sit down. I'd like to front end it with an overdrive just to see how that feels. Cause I've just been playing the amp raw. Um, but it's, it's a fun amp man. And it, and it works really well. But I think the reason it was so expensive is because of at the time, what other amps were MIDI capable? What other amps had individual, uh, reverb control? What other amps had a built in ISP noise decimator? Like, you know, like, there was a bunch of R and D that went into this thing and it was expensive to produce. Yeah. It was, it was an amp that was created. Matt, Matt. Uh Oh, Uh Oh, we lost Tombro one. It's just Tombro two. And no, no. Technical difficulties aside here, folks. Um, Matt, like I said, that, that's, um, that amp, like I said, it, at the time, it was, again, It's it seems like guys like Eggnator and there's other companies that have done it where they're just, they seem like they're ahead of their time. They're thinking ahead, but it's, it's that's kind of one of their awesome qualities, but it's also their downfall. You have to play to the man a little bit. Like, you have to, there's a reason why Marshall and Mesa do so well, because they are making, you know, the industry standard. They're making what people want it's such a fickle crap it's hard to dictate you know one day everybody's using multi-channel amplifiers the next day everybody's running direct using multi-processors then the next day everybody's using boutique class a low wattage amplifiers and running pedals through the front then they're back to using single channel amplifiers and just goosing them with small overdrive it's 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 impossible to predict the market it's impossible to predict the trends and you can either as Snoop Dogg would say, you ride or get rode on, which, you know, take well, that for what it is. But, well, you know, you can either you can either adapt or you, or you get, you know, left in the dust. Well, and that's the thing is that, like, it was one of those things that Eggnator struck before the iron was hot. They had a great, like, the features on this thing, I looked at it, and this amp is how many years old? And I went, oh, wow. If I really wanted to, I could run this with my Helix and control it from my Helix. Like, that's the thing. It was kind of like they looked at the amp and went, let's future-proof this. And at the time, people weren't using MIDI as much. They weren't using that kind of stuff. Like, they, you know, it it just, like, they, they they were ahead of their time. And people went, oh, well, that's cool, but it's not worth the price of admission. I think if Ignator released the Armageddon 
like now or two years ago, people would have gone, whoa, all right. You know what I mean? Because like, you know, companies are doing that. Like, I mean, Mesa with the, the, the JP, uh, head, um, egg angle jumped on it at the right time. Like having MIDI capable tube heads to work with these processors that are coming out, like the fractal, the Kemper, the head rush, uh, you know, the, the heat, you know, all that stuff. I think if they would have struck, if they would have waited, if they would have had this R and D and they would have held it, held it, held it go that it would have been a little more successful. That's the problem with like, well, I mean, it's even the modular preamp thing, you know, Ignator did it and then Randall picked it up and it was popular for a time. Then it went away with Randall and not because it wasn't successful, but I think their contract ran out. Um, and now with the synergy stuff, which is phenomenal, by the way, um, (laughs) dude, whenever I saw that line kept growing, I really kicked around selling a bunch of my stuff and going, all right, I'm going to, I'm just going to go full synergy because then, you know, I can use it for whatever I need. Like if I want to take a, uh, you know, a, a, a twin reverb, a Marshall Plexi and a Bogner Uber shawl to a gig. I could, if I do a theater gig, I could take the, you know, a a a deluxe, a, uh, again, a, uh, a plexi and the Vi module and I could run it, whatever. And it's integratable with my helix. So I don't even have to worry about effects. You know what I mean? All right. I, it, I was kind of in the same boat. How so? Well, well, for me, I was in the same boat because I was hearing all this stuff. And like you said, any amplifier, any configuration that you wanted was right there for the taking. But for me, it was, I had to think of, I had to think of price, obviously, but being able to get on board with line six again with, um, with the pod go, having that basically have the brains of the helix and having those wonderful sounds in there for me, that would just seem more like a cost effective, a more cost effective, uh, option for me. So, Am I still kind of kicking myself because I didn't go with Synergy? Yeah, but I also, you know, still have my mortgage to pay. So <laughs> that was, I, to me, it was a, a better option. But yeah, that, that stuff was phenomenal. Uh, but the Line 6, at least for me, gets me everything I need. But I would love to teeter with the with the Synergy stuff sometime. Well, dude, I got rid. I told you, I told people, I said, I got rid of all my amps because I was in on the Helix thing. Like, and if I wanted to run something yep. through a cabinet, I have a power amp. Like I, you know, I don't need, right. um, like I didn't need all that stuff because I dude, every time what the, the couple times that I took my mesas out, I showed up with the road King and sound guys would go, ah, oh, damn it. I like, yep. and, and you could switch that down to 50 Watts. I had my mark four and the fellow i know tom who has his mark four and gigs with his mark four you got to put it on tweed power cut the power as low as it'll go and put it on mosquito fart levels to make sound guys happy like i i don't i don't want to have to do that because i know what a mark four should sound like and you can't do it you got to wind them up a little bit 
my yep. sound right now for Hellbent stuff in the Helix is based off the Mark IV. It's built around the Mark IV, uh, the Cali IV, they call it, but the, the Mark mm-hmm. IV model. And I was worried that it wouldn't sound good. And I've heard the past couple gigs, the videos we've done, and it sounds awesome. Like, and I was like, why? Yeah, it's cool to have that gear. And if I get to a point in my life where I have the financial ability to just start buying gear to have, to curate, and to maybe take out and play if it's if I'm able to, that's awesome. But as a practical, gigging, working musician, the Helix does everything I need it to do. Yeah. And I think we're in that time frame right now where... You know, between Helix and, like we mentioned, Fractal, um, Headrush, uh, the Podgo. That's, I mean, unfortunately for, you know, average guys and girls that are out jamming with their friends or out playing small gigs, that's, we can't afford to have, uh, you know, a twin reverb, uh, a 59 Plexi. We can't afford to have a Mesa Mark for at our rigs, but with some of this model, we can at least get there and the modeling technology has improved vastly over the past couple of years so really and the audience that we've mentioned this before in our interviews the audience doesn't care they don't give a shit what rig we play as long as it sounds good and they don't care so you know it's it's kind of a pragmatic thing i think to have some really fantastic huge amplifiers but from a practical setting it just doesn't work well and and that's that's the thing at the last gig we had the opening band, uh, A-Track Days, their singer and guitar player, Kevin, he was running a twin reverb um, and then a bunch of pedals. And yeah. I'm going to preface this with he sounded awesome. He sounded great. Like, And he had a minimal pedal board. It was he had a wah, a soul food, a tuner, and that's and maybe a noise gate. I can't remember. It was a minimal pedal board. He sounded awesome. Like he sounded great and he's a great player. But when he plugged that thing in, oh my god, it was it was so loud. Like yeah. he was so loud. The sound guy had to go get baffles to put in front of his amp. Like and and <laughs> that's crazy. Yeah, well, twin <laughs> reverbs are loud as fuck. And like that you know, we talked yeah, about that are. on the other podcast, but like, that's the thing. I'm like, I mean, yeah, is there, is there, there is, like you said, there's something magical about plugging into a tube amp, winding it up and feeling the earth move and your pant legs shake when you play. But on the other hand, man, you, you yeah, that's fine for you. And like, it feels awesome for you, but you want people to be upfront and engaged you don't want them to have to stand back because if they don't, they're going to get annihilated by your amp. Like that's why I, I loved my helix because I got, I, I had a, a couple guys come up and go, dude, you sounded awesome. Like your tone was great. And I'm like, yeah, it was all digital. Like, you know, it like I, that's a very refreshing thing for me to have, like to know that people enjoyed the way it sounded to be, we're able to like be up front and rock out and everything like that's more important to me than having the look of a half stack behind me, you know, like, 
Uh, and if I play outdoor gigs and I can take the Eggnator out and and let it rip, like great. But those days right now are a little bit of a way off. But we're getting a little long in the tooth with this podcast here, Matt. What do you say we do our recommendations <laughs> and then we uh, uh, we have some bevs? <laughs> that sounds good. All right, okay. you, you um, want to you want to yeah. kick off with your recommendation? So let for anyone who's yeah, listening. Sure. Anyone who's listening first right now, at the end of the podcast, we always give recommendations of pieces of gear, like an item that you should go check out. Um, whether it's a pedal, a pickup, uh, cables, picks, strings, whatever. Like uh, guitars, you know, for you to go eyeball. And if you can get your hands on them to try out, that's what we're kind of doing. Take it for what you will. If you think we're stupid, you don't have to listen to us. But if you like what we're doing then maybe go uh, and you, you trust our judgment. Maybe you go try these things out. I'm going to defer to Tombro number one over here and uh, he can go ahead first. Matt. Right. Well, I just have to say we, we can't sound stupid because we're stable geniuses. That's just. just Agreed. Agreed. <laughs> we, we know the words. That's all I can say. So um, I think in all seriousness, uh, the thing that I, uh, keep going back to like we mentioned before is with the current state of gear with rigs with however you want to refer to this uh to me i think digital it's it's been the way of the future for a long time but i think especially now with we don't know what's going to happen going forward uh with live performances uh to me i think it's a good idea to something that you can use in every practical setting that you can essentially have your rig at your, at your fingertips or at your feet. So for me, the kind of game changer gear that I've purchased has been the line sticks pod go. And again, not to sound like a shell, but I've always had a love hate relationship with line sticks over the last 20 years. I can't believe they've been around for, well, it's been over 20 years, but from using the old UX one, uh, processor and running or uh, audio interface and running the old pod farm uh and having it glitch out constantly i had that too i had that too i think everybody anybody that because it was like 70 dollars anybody that was at a guitar center that's when you would talk about finding audio interfaces or finding you know that was the first thing they threw in your face so uh but taking that and 10 years later having them completely revolutionize the the gear industry by having the guts of, or the the brains of, arguably the most authentic sounding uh, digital pro- processing on the market, and putting it in that practical form factor from that we all know and love that we, most of us grew up on was was a brilliant idea. So for me, the game changing rig currently that I can endorse recommend would be Alliance Six Pod Go. And it's not gonna it's not gonna kill your bank account if you can get on with Sweetwater again, not uh, sponsored by, but hope to be some sponsored by. Uh, if you can get a hold of Sweetwater or um, American Musical Supplier, any of those companies, and get on some kind of a payment plan, I I, I think that sells itself. So that's that's my recommendation. Line Six Pod Go for the win. And and I I, I would agree with you because it's. It's a really good step um, 
build quality wise, but functionality, it's like the cool thing about line six, and this is just to reiterate on you, like the pod go is super great. If you want to get into the modeling game and have the brains of the helix in a more admittedly uh, practical form factor, because the helix can get a little difficult. Um, you got to spend some time with it to learn it. Um, but once you do it, the, the world is yours, but the pod go gives you a good intro. It, like Matt said, it doesn't break the bank and it's very usable. Like, so I agree with you. Like, that's a really good one. If you want to go smaller and you're not going to use digital as much, there's the H, uh, the, the HX stomp a little more expensive, but it's, it's a little more, um, it has features. The pod go doesn't. And the PodGo has features that the HX Stomp doesn't. So you have to kind of think about what you're going to use. Um, my recommendation, I actually have um, I actually have uh, two. One is for people who are already in the digital world. One is for any guitar player out there. So I'm sorry I'm taking a liberty here, Matt. Uh, but the, <laughs> the one for, for folks who are in the digital game um, and you're looking, for, you're looking at IRs, number one, Spend some time with the stock cabinets in your um, in your processor, whatever it may be, uh, Helix, Kemper, Fractal, whatever it is. Spend some time with the stock ones because you can get some good tones out of there. But if you want to go to the IR game, um, and I know there are a lot of names out there. There's a lot of companies that, that started up and got in on the ground floor of selling impulse responses um, that are great. Um, I haven't run into any that are terrible. Uh, they just have their specific uses, but my recommendation, um, and I wonder people out there are probably thinking, Oh, he's going to tell us own hammer or something like that. And own hammer IRs are great. And they offer free ones for you to try out to see if own hammer is your vibe. And I have own hammer IRs and I like them, but my recommendation is ML sound labs, ML sound labs, uh, is a, first of all, a, an awesome company. They are very supportive. Um, they're very easy to use. They run the gamut from having impulse responses to, um, they have amp sim plugins, uh, that you can use for your, uh, your DAW, uh, that are really good. They, they sound and feel and play great. Um, but the, the one that I would, the thing I would recommend for you folks out there who are in the digital game, look at ML Sound Labs. You want a cabinet? They have it. Like uh, the ones that I've purchased. Actually, you know what? I'll tell you what. Let me pull up here my uh, my my thing on my computer, because um, uh, I have uh, purchased quite a few IRs from them, just because I I really like them. Um, I have the Bogner Uber Pack. I have the Mars hair metal, which is apparently based off of um, uh, Mick Mars's actual Marshall cabinets. I have the Mega Green cabinet, which is Zilla cabinets. I have the Mega Oversized cabinet, and I have the Mega Traditional pack. Um, they were also having a say, and now I bought all these. And here's what ML Sound Lab did. This is why I say they're really supportive. They realized people were on lockdown. They realized people were going to be shut down. And it's like, all right, let's do something nice for people out there while they're stuck inside and maybe they're playing guitar more. They had a massive, massive sale on all of their cab packs. 
And um, that's where I got into a lot of mine because I saw a deal and I picked it up. Um, I, I picked up the Halloween pack. They do a seasonal Halloween pack that's kind of a mishmash of their... Um, their various uh, cabinets for you to try. Like the uh, in this one this year, there was the Gent pack. They had the Gent cabs, uh, Marshall cabs, OS Mesas. They had all kinds of cool stuff in there. So check out ML Sound Labs. They are a really great company, and their impulse responses are phenomenal. Uh, the other recommendation that I have is actually a guitar pick, like Matt said. Um, I'm going to recommend Intune guitar picks. Um, I was a hardcore Dunlop user for years. And whenever I joined Hellbent, I wanted a custom pick and Intune was the one that I saw. You can customize your pick. They have your shape. They have your gauge. I use an extra large jazz three. Um, that's a, a thicker pick. And I got, I was able to print Hellbent on them. Like they're, they're also awesome. They, they will send you a proof beforehand and you can review it. And if you want to make changes, they will work with you to make the changes. Uh, I did that on the most recent uh, packs of picks I, I got where it looked really weird with the lowercase font. So I said, let's do uppercase and they look phenomenal. So yeah, Intune is the one for anybody who's looking for a guitar pick that might add a little bit of extra flair to your personal thing. So there you go. There's our recommendations here on uh, the Tone Bros podcast. Matt, this was a pretty good episode. Technical difficulties aside. Yeah, definitely. And um, there's a couple things that we touched on that kind of gave me ideas for the next podcast. So that's that's something to look forward to. Awesome. Well, uh, in, in any case, folks, please do us a favor. Go on over to our Facebook page. That's facebook.com slash Tone Bros podcast. Um, give us a like while you're over there, comment on anything. If you have any ideas for stuff you want us to talk about, please leave us there. Shoot us a message on Facebook. We'll answer you. Um, we also try and, uh, update news on there, like any gear news or anything that's going on. We try and post it. So keep an eye there. Also keep an eye out for the YouTube. I'm going to get it set up. I'm just, uh, apparently a lazy son of a bitch. The, um, <laughs> but, um, uh, you know, that's awesome. Also, if I may, because I plugged this podcast on my other one, I actually, along with, uh, three of my buddies, uh, beef, uh, uh, ransom and, uh, tiger bomb, Tom, we do a little podcast called the Pittsburgh pile driver podcast. And that is a pro wrestling podcast that we do. We try and do a, uh, not even try. We do a weekly show where we go over, um, the previous weeks of wrestling. We'll do picks, for uh upcoming pay-per-views we do um occasionally we'll do some what we call breaking kayfabe which is where we talk about things that aren't wrestling we'll talk about video games we'll talk about um uh you know life stuff we all we also play some among us as well uh we're going to be putting up a new episode of that here very soon so make sure you check out uh the Pittsburgh Pile Driver podcast as well. We're over on YouTube at youtube.com slash Pittsburgh Pile Driver podcast. Also, you can find us on Facebook. Again, that's facebook.com slash Pittsburgh Pile Driver podcast. And uh, you can also buy a Pittsburgh Pile Driver podcast t shirt. It's over on Gould Gaming under Casual Gaming Dad. Uh, he is uh, Tiger Bomb Tom. 
Uh, he's the fellow we do uh, the podcast with, and he was nice enough to put our shirt in his merch store and also maybe buy some casual Gaming Dad merch as well. So there you go. Plug in my other podcast just because I plugged our podcast on the other one. And uh, so first of all, I want to th- – and as we uh, head away, Matt, um, thank you so much for joining me today, and we'll get more of these done. And uh, I hope your beverages are enjoyable. And ladies and gentlemen, hopefully uh, the riffs are good, your tone is good, and remember – Gain is not volume. He's right, you know. <laughs>